Have you developed a habit that is affecting your well-being and has the potential to become an overindulgence? Have you tried many, many times to interrupt the cycle, but each time life has come in between and you have relapsed? Or are you concerned for someone you care about who regularly overindulges and wants to support them but not sure how? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer this and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened. Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgiven Thrive Show. Pizza, chocolate, ice cream, alcohol, smoking, TV, social media. Most of us have something we enjoy more than anything else. That thing we indulge in, perhaps a little bit more than that's good for us. Something that fills our idle moments. But then, before we realize, our idle moments stretch out. We lose control on how much is okay enjoying that thing we do and how much becomes too much. What was just our little indulgence starts taking over and ruling our life. It becomes overindulgence. Today we are in a conversation with Duncan Baskaran Brown to talk about overindulging, how much it can mess out our life and what we can do to stop it and regain control of our life. Duncan is a speaker and an author. He has done his fair share of overindulgence. In his own words, He has drunk more than his fair share of wine and eaten more than his fair share of cake. After 20 years of overdoing it, he cleaned up his act and trained with the Easy Way Clinic, the world's most successful stop smoking service. He discussed his method to change our relationship with food, alcohol, and life in his book, Get Overindulgence, Take Control, Find Your Stress-Free Life. And he uses this method to help people push overindulgence out of their life. Hi, Duncan. Thank you for coming and welcome to the Forgiven Dry Show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, diving into some stuff today. Thank you. Um, so, Duncan, before we, we start, I really would like to start with you and to learn a little bit more about you and in particular your relationship with indulgence and overindulgence. For sure. Well, I started off with chocolate, you know, because that's, that's sort of a socially acceptable drug for a nine-year-old, isn't it? So, um, 
I don't know how do you, how to best describe my school days. Well, I don't think I really fitted in at school. You know, it it it, it wasn't really for me. Um, I had a lot of difficulties reading. So, you know, it, the the whole school program, yeah, it just it wasn't for me. Let's say that. So I, that gave me a lot of stress in my life, and I looked for ways to to help me cope with that. And I thought, you know, I discovered a, a great one through. Uh, through chocolate and obviously as you grow up a little bit you know you um you find other things don't you um for me that, that turned into alcohol uh, quite quite a lot of alcohol I started smoking started uh, con continued with the the bad diet and um you know for years and years and years I thought that that was just how I coped with all of the stresses and strains of life but then one or two things happened made me really think about what it was really doing to me and what I really wanted from my life. And uh, yeah, I, I figured out that um, it, was, it was doing me more harm than good, far more harm than good. Um, so I, I cleaned up my act and uh, yeah, I'm living my best life here with you today. That's fantastic. Now, I mentioned that you also wrote a book about it. And this is perhaps not the most common reaction to something that society will say, oh, you know, you should be ashamed of perhaps of, of that kind of, uh, I call it addiction, uh, you call it overindulgence, but um, perhaps a, a very similar concept. So what led you to write a book and to show that sort of uh, vulnerability uh, there, that there was something that you had to clean up, uh, as you said? Sure. I mean, partly it, it is because despite everything I just said about not really getting on in school, when I got out of school, I discovered I quite like writing. So uh, <laughs> it seemed like a kind of fairly natural vehicle for me. Um, I don't know, maybe part of my brain is, uh, wants to go back and uh, find those primary school teachers and wave the book in their face. But anyway, uh, no, why did I write it? Really? What I, I just wanted to show people that there is another way, you know, that there is the possibility of change. Because I think for a lot of my life, I just thought, this is how it is. You know, I, I have to drink. I have to eat like this. I didn't, I didn't see that I had any choice. There was a, a, any way to, to live another life. So that's really all I want to do is show people that, that there is a way out, that it's simpler than you think, that it's easier than you think, and, and that it is there. And, you know, I, all I really try and do is, um, you know, show people uh, that, that there is change in the world. Yeah, you mentioned here something already quite profound. This thing of going from indulging in something and that you had to do, like uh, you had to eat, you had to drink. What does it really mean over indulging? Because with a lot of these things, we, we need to do it. You know, we need to eat, we need to, to drink. So where is that threshold between, you know, something I need to do because it's part of my life? I mean, it seems perhaps a, a silly question, but... No, no, no. no I that... we don't realise that threshold that we have passed through it. Yeah, no, I think that's a, an excellent question. I think it gets to the heart of the problem. I mean, if, of, of course, before I answer it, I'm going to say something else mostly that uh, you do not need to drink alcohol, uh, you do not need to smoke cigarettes, you do not need to take drugs, you do not need to uh, binge watch Netflix. But the, the, so, so those things, it, it's very easy, it's very clear, just don't do them, you know. They, they don't enhance your life, you don't need to do them, so, so stop. 
However, as you correctly point out, one does need to eat and one does need to, to drink some form of liquid. And then it becomes a matter of, well, what are you going to eat? What are you going to, to drink? And that is, of course, where a lot of people get into, into problems. They, they know broadly that they should eat more vegetables. I mean, everybody knows that, right? But not everybody does it. Uh, and you've got to look at the reason why. Don't overindulge in vegetables. That's well, I, I, to be honest with you, I did eat a little bit too much mango the other day. Do like mango. And this, this, hot, this hot weather is making me overdo it slightly with the melons. But, um, you know, it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, we tend to overindulge in foods that have high content of sugar, salt and fat or possibly all three. And that's when it becomes, you're, you're eating more out of compulsion rather than out of necessity. Because, you know, we, we need to eat. That, that, that is the bottom line. We need, to, to, uh, we need to, to get rid of our hunger. We need to fill our bodies full of energy. Unfortunately, a lot of the food that we're presented with um, is not actually going to nourish your body or provide you with energy or indeed actually sate your hunger. Um, it, will make you, um, it will make you eat more. So how do we develop that overindulgence? Is it like a linear, you start eating more or drinking more every single day? Or perhaps there is a sort of cycle where, you know, you, you start doing it and then perhaps you stop and then you go back to that habit. How does it really work? Yeah, I think, again, that's an excellent question. Partly, um, it is linear. Obviously, if you draw it on a big enough graph, it, just going to look like an up, upward line. Um, so it, it is kind of linear. People tend to drink more than they did a year ago, more than they did 10 years ago. People tend to eat more junk food than they did a year ago, 10 years ago. But it doesn't necessarily always progress like that. I mean, I, I think most people who have got to the point where they've realized they've got some sort of a problem, whether that's they, they just see their diet causing their weight gain or whether they've just kind of done the math on drinking and realize it's a bit of a problem. They do something to try and cut down. The problem is that most of the time they do the wrong thing. They do something that isn't going to work, something that either involves willpower or restriction or just a, a, a kind of reduction which is, is never going to work. And then what that does is it makes them think that change is impossible. It makes them think that they will never be able to get out of it because they try and they fail. But if you try and just reduce, for example, any foods that you're eating that are very compulsive, so they're very high sugar food, or alcohol or cigarettes, you just try and reduce it. As soon as you have some of it, it gets into your system and it kicks off the whole process again. So you will inevitably want more of it and you will inevitably end up busting the artificial restrictions you put on yourself, feeling like a failure, that triggers a whole other cycle of shame and regret. And that just, you know, what do you do when you feel bad? You drink the drink, you eat the food. So you just end up worse than where you were before you started in terms of your consumption and much worse in terms of your outlook because you just believe that means you're never going to get free. So what are really the pain points then? that we have to pay attention to when it comes to overindulging or can lead to indulging. Because it's not really, I like cake, so I, I eat cake. 
or I like wine, so I drink more wine. There is something behind that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's always a very difficult thing to get into. I am a big fan of a guy called Mark Lewis. He's um, a neurologist. He uh, had a bit of a drug problem, um, sorted himself out and then became a neurologist and endeavoured to understand how he'd got into the position of having a bit of a drug problem, which so makes his writing very, very interesting, I always thought. But um, he said that it's like a house with many doors. And that I think that makes so much sense to me because of all of the people I've met, they all come in through a slightly different door. You know, there are lots and lots of different ways of getting into it. For me, it was, it was to do with, very much to do with stress. Uh, but for other people, it can be to do with um, emotional aspects. It can be about relationship. It can be about self-esteem. Um, something that if you've spent more than I don't know, we've probably been talking for 15 minutes now. If you spent more than 15 minutes with, with me, you probably triggered the fact that I don't have confidence issues. I, well, I do, I have too much of the stuff. But, um, you know, lot, people have lots of different ways of, of, of coming into the house. And I, I think it is important, but um, for my money, I think you should address the physical aspect of the problem you have with whatever you're eating or drinking and then start to think about the emotional aspect that maybe took you into that. Because in my opinion, and in my experience, it's easier to deal with the emotional aspect when, you, when you've got over the physical aspect. When, once you've stopped drinking, it's easier to process the stuff that um, started you drinking in the first place. So do you think that sometimes people struggle to admit to themselves that they are actually having an overindulgence? So there are resistance that they have to face first before addressing the problem. Yes, I, th I think there's, there's two really interesting aspects to that question. One is absolutely, I spent years and years and years trying to convince everybody I'd meet that, you know, my lifestyle was brilliant and I was enjoying it. And, uh, you know, there was nothing better than kicking back with a couple of bottles of wine. It was, it was really, you know, something that I enjoyed doing. And I literally would try and convince people that that was the case. I mean, of course, as, as I now know, and as your listeners are probably astute enough to have realized, I was only really trying to convince myself, wasn't I? So, you know, all of that bravado, it was covering up for the fact that I knew it was causing me, me pain. So, yeah, part of the difficulty is realizing that um, it is a it is a problem and admitting to yourself that not only is it not great, that it is actually a problem. And that, I guess, is the, the, the second point, that once you can do that, you have actually gone a huge distance in terms of solving the problem. Uh, that is one of the most important things you can do, just to acknowledge that there is a problem. Because, you know, if you don't know that something's wrong, you're never going to find the solution. Now, once you've worked out that there is an issue, finding a solution is, is so much easier. And there's a lot of different ways of getting uh, out of the house. I mean, that's the advantage of the house having many doors. There are a lot of ways in, but there are also a lot of ways out again. And I, I clearly have fairly strong and defined opinions about how people should get overindulgence. And I, I imagine we might touch on them again in a second. But, you know, if you do anything that's going to help you get, get out of that house, then... That's, you know, I'm all for that, and I'd, I'd never criticize another technique. Uh, if it works for you, it works for you. 
and there are lots of different ways. So awareness is uh, definitely uh, one of the starting points. Do you think that perhaps emotions like shame could contribute to keep us with the head under the sand and not really taking action to address the overindulgence? Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a massive amount of, of shame that kind of swirls around it, doesn't it? And you sort of think that, you know, you, you, you manage to kind of almost train yourself into believing that you're weak. If you have these repeated attempts to, to stop something and you fail, then, then that kind of convinces that you that you're weak and that makes you feel ashamed because as a culture, we do not exactly admire weak, do we? So that, that builds in the kind of shame. There's the impact on your family. You know, they might be vocal about it. They might not be vocal about it. Um, if they are vocal about it, that's straight away going to trigger a massive amount of shame, usually, not always, but that's, that's usually the response. Um, but even if they're not actively saying something about it, you can see, you know, you can tell. You, you know, I look at my family and I'd see the impact that I was having on them. Um, and that triggered an enormous amount of additional shame on top of it and of course you know it, it makes sense if you make somebody feel ashamed and their default solution to dealing with pain is drinking or eating rubbishy food then what are they going to do they're going to drink they're going to eat rubbish food they're going to smoke take drugs whatever it is you know so almost as a society we try and shame people out of overindulgence and it never works. It just makes it worse because the more you shame them, the more they want to do it, the further into the cycle they get. So what does it have to happen for someone to take action and, and really change? So as, as I said, the, the first thing, the most important thing is to, to realize that you do need to change. Once you've got that, you really are nicely down the road. Now, I tend to work with people and I tend to talk about three distinct things and we go through these kind of phases. Once they've realized that, that they, they want to change, they want to stop drinking, they want to take the junk food out of their life, whatever, then first off, we sort of like look at the way they think about it. So we try and uh, accept that there are basically two parts to your brain. To make, keep it nice and simple, I mean, your brain is enormously complicated, but keeping it simple, you've got these two bits. There's this one bit that says to you, oh, let's drink the wine, let's eat the cake, let's have another cigarette. And then there's another bit uh, that actually makes the decision, the one that, that decides whether you're going to listen to that voice or not. So the first thing to do is to kind of accept that you've got those two parts of your head, the bit that makes the suggestion and the bit that makes the decision, and listen out for that voice. You know, you'll always hear it round about, uh, for me, it was always about eight o'clock in the evening. Let's have a glass of wine, Duncan. He would whisper gently into my ear. So you listen out for that voice. Once you've, once you've identified that voice, step two is to give that voice a name. Now, I'm not going to tell your listeners what I called mine. They're going to have to read the book to find out. But needless to say, I don't doubt your listeners are very creative and imaginative people, and they will come up with some quite exciting and interesting names for that voice. I want to stress, you know, there are no rules about naming the voice. It doesn't have to be male. doesn't have to be female. doesn't even have to be human but call it something so that you're not, you, you know who you're dealing with. Be really clear about who it is that's making that suggestion and that that is a separate person from the person that made the decision. Once you've done that, you're ready for the third step, which is to formulate a response to that little voice. Now, 
there are ways of approaching it, but I tend to start by getting people to ask a question. It could be something as simple as, how's that going to help? But of course, you can make it a lot more kind of bespoke and a lot more tailored towards your life. So that might be to do with your relationships. You might ask how it's going to make you a better parent or improve your relationship with your significant other. It might be about money or your business or your employment or something like that. How's it going to help me hit my financial targets for this year? It might be about physical or mental health. You know, how's that going to help me run that 5K? Just something that's really important to you and form it as a question and then ask that little voice question because trust me, they do not have an answer to that question. Hmm. That's quite interesting and reminds me of a book that uh, Simon Sinek wrote, The Start With Why. Now, that is a completely different book. It's addressed to businesses. And uh, he analyzed, I don't know if you read it, but he analyzed a number of businesses and all the successors one had something in common and they had a very strong why to do what they did. So what you are saying is basically something similar. You start with a good question. Why am I doing this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, incidentally, thanks very much for comparing me to Simon Sinek. I'm not going <laughs> to complain about that. And yes, I have read Start With Why. It's, a, it's an excellent book. And yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, whatever you want to achieve in life, having a really clear and strong sense of purpose and, uh, you know, what, why you're trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve is, um, it's absolutely at the center of, uh, of everything. And it, it is good motivation. Uh, I mean, I would say on its own, it's not necessarily enough. You do need the, the kind of the, um, the ability to handle the thought process. The, what I was just talking about, you know, having that, that conversation, it's, it's handling the thought process. You need skills like that. But yeah, you've got a really clear reason why you want to um, remove something from your lifestyle. It really, really helps. And I, I, I say that having worked with, with quite a lot of people, you know, and you often you can see people, they're just, they're just desperate and the motivation uh, is, is obvious. And, you know, I, I think it really helps to acknowledge that. So would you say that if someone has done part of this work, so is aware of the problem, I said, okay, I know the consequences of it. I know how much is impacting and how much my life could improve by that. But they still have some resistance in uh, taking over control you know of their own life and stop overindulging what would be the reason for that i think you kind of gotta look at these things on a on a case-by-case basis for each each person yeah they, they they often have different motivations but a lot of the time it all boils down to to fear you know we we get used to living a certain way and while we may be able to acknowledge it has its limitations and it has its problems, there's also a part of our brain that's, that's trying to defend that. I mean, we, we fear change. We do that as a, as a species, you know? And, and partly you can, you can see a very good reason why, why we do that. Because, you know, if, you're, if you've got a nice, um, nice source of food in this valley, you want to stay with this source of food in this valley. You don't want to run off over to the other valley on the off chance that the blueberries are going to taste slightly better. You know, so our brains keep us in, in this point. It tends to overemphasize 
the positives and sort of play down the negatives. And you can see why it does that. But often it's about going through and almost in a very granular way, addressing each different aspect. Will you be able to sleep uh, when you stop drinking? Yes. Yes, you will sleep so much better. Will you be able to socialize when you stop drinking? Yes, of course you will. In fact, it's, it's much better. You'll enjoy it more because you can't claim to enjoy doing something if you can't remember it in the morning. So yeah, look, you know, there's, there's always lots and lots of, of, of issues like that, but they all boil down to the fact that people are, are afraid of, of, of changing. So become really mindful of everything that is happening in our life, questioning and, and challenging every single decision we take. Absolutely, absolutely. Daniel Kahneman talks a lot about, you know, system one, system two thinking, system one being the automatic stuff, which is really, really helpful. You know, you automatically check your wing mirrors before you overtake when you're driving. And if you're driving uh, anywhere near me, I'm, I'm happy you're doing that. You know, <laughs> keep doing that. That's great. All of those automatic things that we do, uh, you know, they keep us alive. They're really, really important. But the sad truth is that most people, when they drink and when they eat, it becomes automatic and it becomes entirely that system one thinking. And the great thing about mindfulness is it takes you out of that system one thinking and it moves you squarely into system two thinking, which is the bit of your brain that is actually able to rationalize and think about things. And it's, you know, it works in exactly the same way as asking that question. It just puts in a little bit of a pause. It makes you think about what you're doing and think through what you're doing because, you know, I've eaten so many, I've eaten the entire packet of cookies without even thinking about it. Might have tasted the first one, but the rest of them were entirely automatic. Uh, so it's, a, it's about getting out of that automatic way of thinking uh, and moving it over to, to your rational mind. Uh, you know, mindfulness is a, is, a, is a great way of doing that as well. Yeah, I can uh, totally see that. I'm very big in uh, that not mindful uh, eating, so um, I can definitely see that. But a lot of these uh, overindulgence happen socially. And sometimes to be mindful, you need to be on your own and really pay attention to what you're doing. So, for example, if we are in a pub, if we are in a restaurant with other people, we just eat. We, our hands just reach out for... Uh, the next piece of bread or, or pizza or, or, or next drink, we don't really realize. So what to do with the social aspect? So I think in terms of, of eating and in terms of drinking, having a plan always, always helped. So if you work out what it is you want to eat before you go out, I think you are much more likely to stick within the kind of confines that that, that, that you've, you've set yourself. And then it's about using little tricks like um, stick your napkin over the food. When you've eaten enough of it, stick your napkin over the top of it. Because uh, you've, done, you've done it, I've done it, we've all done it, haven't we? You, like, you think, oh, I can't eat anymore, but the plate's in front of you, there's some chips left on it. Give it two minutes, maybe three, and you'll be subconsciously eating the chips. So just chuck your napkin over the top of it and that way, uh, you know, you, you can't see them anymore and it makes it just that little bit harder to do it. In terms of drinking, I think have a plan about whether you're drinking or not. Uh, and that is a totally binary decision. If you are going to drink, uh, you know, that you are going to drink. 
if you are not going to drink, then, you know, go with that intention that you are not going to drink anything. The worst thing in the world is to say to yourself, oh, I'll just have one, because you never do. And, and that makes sense. I mean, what does alcohol do to you? It lowers your inhibitions, makes your decision processing a little bit fuzzy. So as soon as you've had one, your brain's in with those excuses, oh, let's have another, let's have another. And, you know, thinking your way out of that particular problem is, is much, much harder. So it's either, either say to yourself, I am not drinking today, or, you know, if, you, if drinking is the right thing for you, just accept that you're going to. Try to limit what you're going to drink. I mean, don't go nuts. But um, that is, for me, why uh, I don't drink, because it is just so much easier. I never, ever have to make any decisions. I just don't. You'll make it easier uh, for yourself. One other thing that comes to mind where trying to stop overindulging on something is that perhaps we replace one overindulgence with another one. So we don't really address the problem that we tend to go into the overindulgence. So we are almost addicted to overindulging in something. Is this something that you experience with yourself or with, with others? And if so, what can we do to say, okay, I want to stop overindulging? So my own experience is that um, I stopped drinking and shortly after I stopped drinking, a huge amount of additional stress hit my life. And I, luckily, uh, you know, I was in a good enough position that I didn't start drinking again. But I had sort of developed this little voice in the back of my head that said, oh, well, you don't drink now, so you can basically eat as much ice cream as you like, uh, which turned out to be not such good advice after all. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I guess I was kind of lucky that it didn't take me that long to realize that I was eating in exactly the same way that I used to drink. I was, I, I like have this kind of nervous feeling if I didn't have enough sugary junk food in the house. Like I'd be going to the, the, the shops to buy uh, some ice cream and it, it felt very similar to the way I'd be rushing to the shop to buy wine beforehand. So I kind of, I was lucky because I, I noticed that reasonably quickly and I was able to do something about it. But yes, absolutely, I have noticed that I did it, lots of other people do it. So the more important point is how do you stop doing it? I think what, the, the mistake that most people make is that they stop, you know, they stop. And you don't want to stop, you want to start. So yes, you want to stop drinking, you want to stop eating junk, you want to stop smoking, whatever. But you don't want to see that as the end. You want to see that as the beginning because, you know, life is a journey, isn't it? It's, it's a long thing. We're planning on living for many, many more decades, aren't we? So why would we say, boom, that's it, that's done? Well, you've got to keep moving forward. And I don't want to say that in a way that it piles a bunch of pressure onto everybody. You don't have to climb Everest every day, but every day you have to climb Every day you have to get that, just that little bit better. You have to constantly be thinking, right, how can I improve this? How can I improve that? How can I get myself a little bit fitter? How can I improve my diet a little bit more? How can I, you know, squeeze in a bit more meditation? And when you get to the point where, you know, your biggest decision in life is whether you should uh, meditate before or after your overnight oats, then you know you've basically got it cracked. You can probably relax a little bit, but... For us mere mortals, you know, like, like Bob Dylan said, just keep on keeping on. This is very interesting what you just mentioned here and the example of climbing Mount Everest because 
I think very often it's the overwhelm that comes from changing radical habits that really stops us from, from taking action, even uh, the, the simple uh, or, first, or first step. So it's really breaking things down and, and making sure that we do a little step every single day, right? Uh, absolutely. And if you want any advice on that, the uh, best book I ever re read was Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Fantastic, fantastic guy. Ran the Behaviour Change Lab at Stanford University. Worked with thousands of people from around the world. And um, what I, I particularly like about him is he managed to prove that what um, another one of my favourite people, Alan Carr, who started the Easy Way Clinic where I trained, I just proved that what Alan was saying 40 years ago was true. So, uh, yeah, and, and that is all about, you know, how to, to take small actions and how big things can grow from taking small actions. And uh, yes, you know, a, a journey of a thousand steps starts with a single cliche, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. Well, one thing that comes to mind when thinking about overindulgence and what we tend to overindulgence in is are all the overindulgent uh, made equal? So, for example, with food, and we mentioned something at the very beginning, with food we have to, to eat. Perhaps with social media we don't have to. And is, is it that they are not made, made equal or I'm just taking an excuse to justify myself on my food <laughs> addiction? Well, I think, again, I'm going to cop out and say it's a little bit like a case-by-case basis isn't it because you know some people will have a, a, a perfectly fine relationship with food but struggle more with social media so but for them the two things aren't equal I, I mean to, to take it back as far as you can to first principles I mean the, the, the thing is it all works in exactly the same way you know it, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about online gaming or crack cocaine or you know food, alcohol, whatever, it, it all works in the same way. And you can, you can take, you can get it out of your life in largely exactly the same way. So the degree to which it's causing you a problem is the only thing you should really worry about. So, um, you know, if you have a perfectly healthy relationship with food and uh, you eat ice cream occasionally, then great, brilliant. You don't have a problem. But obviously if it's causing you problems, and it's causing you issues and, uh, you know, it's making you unhappy, then you do have an issue and you should do something about it. So they, they won't affect everybody equally, but they do all work the same way. You mentioned before the impact that family, for example, and friends can have on people uh, when we talk about shame. Now, thinking about supporting someone, in our, in, for example, in our family that is a struggling with stopping overindulging. How can we do that in a, in a way that really helps them? How can we advise, what can we advise to our listeners? I, I love this question, apart from the fact that it always makes me be a, a little bit harsh about my mum. Because I, I, I must start by saying I do love my mother and she is a wonderful human being and everything. But um, it was particularly around smoking. She would always give me such a hard time about smoking. You'd always, you know, try out all the favorites about how it's killing you, costing you a fortune, you know, it's made you a slave, etc. Et 
which made me feel bad, which made me feel ashamed, as we mentioned earlier. And so what did I do? I'd go and have a cigarette, wouldn't I? So, I, I mean, I get where she's coming from. You know, she's doing it because she loves me and she wants to help me and she wants to support me. But what she's actually done is the, or the effect of what she's done is the reverse of what she was intending. So when I ever, anybody asks me, um, you know, what they can do to help somebody who's got, got a problem, I always say the first thing is don't make it any worse. You know, don't do the thing that is almost a natural thing to do, the thing that you want to do, which is to tell them how terrible it is and how much it's going to, you know, hurt them and harm them and et cetera, et cetera. And the, the thing is, I think if we take a step back, we all know that shaming somebody into stopping doing something has never worked. You know, largely speaking, I think we probably all learned that lesson at school, you know? So first off, don't, don't try that approach. So what should you do? Simple, offer them some support, you know, some love, some compassion. Tell them that you're there for them. And that is enormously powerful. That's enormously simple. Uh, and you can't go far wrong with just saying, look, I'm here for you if you need anything. If there's anything I can do. Offer them the unconditional love and support. That, that always helps. Uh, you can also explain to them that, you know, change is possible, that there are people in the world who have changed and, you know, you can maybe gently show them some examples of people who have made a difference to their lives. I am pleased to say there are more and more of them in the world these days. There's, you know, more and more sober communities out there, which is, which is fantastic. One of the, the great things that's happening at the moment. And if you really want to get deeply into it, um, there's a few books that I always recommend. Um, I mentioned Alan Carr earlier. That's not the comedian. That's the world-famous addiction expert. Um, he wrote The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. So if you know somebody you'd like to stop smoking, that is a great place to start. Uh, it really explains how it all works in nice, simple terms that we can all understand. Uh, but there are also a, a lot of other fantastic books out there. Um, Gabor Mate in the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is an excellent, excellent book. And there's also this rather good book called Get Overindulgent by this guy called Duncan Vascraft. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to mention that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you for this answer. I was laughing when you start talking about your mother because two days ago she said, oh, you know, I went to see this uh, clinic. They have this program to lose weight. And I said, okay, I'm going to end up now. Bye. <laughs> and that was last time I spoke with her. Um, so thank you very much. I mean, uh, uh, it, it helps, I think, if you are on the other side, but also for someone who has the problem to, to understand some of the processes and, and the reaction, because the reaction is as bad as uh, perhaps that interaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, comes, it always comes from the best place, doesn't it? It always comes from a position of love, but that's always quite hard to see. Uh, absolutely. I, I, now, one of the things that I, I noticed, I have um, two nephews and a lovely niece, they start to develop something that for me is overindulgence. Where at an age where you wouldn't think of addiction quite yet. In their cases, TV is uh, uh, games and uh, social media and all these kind of things. And sometimes I'm a little bit concerned that they might go a little bit too, too far. In particular, when it comes, for example, to social media, because they can get 
a, a wrong perception, a wrong idea of what the world is. They might get unrealistic role models, for example. They might develop false standards of what is uh, good and what is not, what is acceptable and what is not, what is important and what is not. So as a, a parent, what would you advise to everybody out there? What should they really pay attention with their children? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's enormously difficult because, you know, I can kind of blithely say, well, you don't need to go on social media, but you try telling that to the average teenager. They're not, they're not going to believe you. And to be fair, it would actually be slightly hypocritical of me to say you don't need to go on social media. I promote my business through social media. So kind of I do, don't I? Um, so it, it is enormously difficult. And I think you have to be very, very careful with young people because their brains are developing. And uh, I mean, our brains develop throughout our lives. And the, the good news is you can always change, change it. But, but so much of it gets wired together, um, you know, in that crucial, that crucial period, uh, the, you know, the, the teenage years. Uh, that is why, um, you know, I really am going to try very hard to not allow uh, my daughter to drink any alcohol before she's over 18, ideally before she's over 20, because the evidence is there with alcohol. You know, giving it to young people is a terrible idea. It, 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 the earlier you start drinking, the greater your likelihood of developing a problem with alcohol. Now, the thing about social media is we don't really know. We, you know, we haven't had people who've grown up with it and have you know, spent years and years and years with it because it is all relatively new. So we are somewhat in uncharted territory. Um, I think with all of these things, you've got to strike a balance, haven't you? You've, you can't blanket ban it, but then again, you've just got to try and provide something um, in terms of a family structure that actually can compete with it a little bit. So um, you... you you, you, uh, you've got to allow them time to do it, but then in the time that they're not doing it, you've got to give them something worth doing other than that. So that's about, you know, building a strong family that eats together and spends time together and does things together. And I, I think being interested in your, your, your children and their friends and always asking them and trying to get into being a part of their life, I think that's... Um, that's another important aspect of it. I mean, it's not something I'm necessarily an expert on, but I have read a very good book, again by Gabor Mate, Hold On To Your Kids. That's an, that's an excellent one. So, um, yeah, look, you know, it comes down, it comes down to, to love and compassion and, uh, you know, providing an alternative to social media, I suppose. I love this answer. I think it's, uh, uh, if I understood correctly, is uh, creating their own model inside the family within, uh, um, you know, the, the network of people you have around before they can uh, find wrong role models on the social media. And, uh, yeah, because yeah. they're going to follow someone. And uh, who do you want them to follow? Do you want them to follow their friends? Do you want them to follow some random person on Instagram or do you want them to follow you? So, I mean, I'm not saying I've made uh, a, a, a incredible decisions at every point in my life, but I like to think 
I've got more of a handle on it than my six-year-old. <laughs> I'm sure you, you do. But there is a, um, some, uh, a short passage that I would like to read you, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, you will comment on that. It's uh, from John Rosmond. And he said, give your children regular daily doses of vitamin N. This vital nutrient consists simply of the most character-building two-letter word in the English language, no. Unfortunately, many, if not most, of today's children suffer from vitamin N deficiency. They have been overindulged by well-meaning parents who have given them far too much of what they want and far too little of what they truly need. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't like to be kind of judgmental school-run dad, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do see it sometimes, um, people with their kids, and it, it's like this is the point where you need to be the grown-up and say no, and they're not really prepared to do that. And I, I mean, if nothing else, it's just going to make your life harder down the line. I mean, if nothing else, you should get good at it because it does make your life easier. If you set these clear boundaries, then when over stuff that isn't like life or death, then when it gets to the stuff that is life or death, then they are going to listen to you. So yeah, absolutely. I am a, a I don't think I liked it when I was a kid, but I, I'm now, I'm a, as a parent, I'm a massive fan of the word no. Almost sometimes, I think sometimes I do it in a little bit of an arbitrary way, but it's like, I've said no now, so we're not going to do it. And I'm not, I'm not giving in on that. Um, as I say, my daughter is only six, so whether this translates to uh, joy and happiness during the teenage years, we have yet to see. But uh, yeah, I think absolutely you've, you've got to start as you mean to go on, haven't you? In fact, one of my favourite statistics is the, um, the thing that's most likely to influence what you eat at the age of 20 is what you eat at the age of two. Uh, absolutely. I, I can definitely see that in... Uh... If you don't start very early on, then it's difficult to build that habit when you are in your teenager years. Yeah, and I, actually I was at a funeral the other day and uh, this lady, she had four kids and they all obviously wanted to say something. So they sort of split the eulogy four ways and it was really nice. And, I, you know, they, they happened to be an enormous admirer of their mum. So, you know, it was, it was great. But one thing that I did notice was every single one of them told some story about food and it was almost as if you know their inheritance uh was you know a particular cake that their mum used to make kind of thing and it, it was it was clear how much uh you know they had really got from their parents around food and not not simply what they ate but the, the way they thought about what they ate and uh you know, it really, really struck me about how much, you know, we do pass on to our children. You know, Bernie Brown said, you can't give somebody something you don't have, which I'm all too well aware of because my daughter now wants a unicorn. But if you don't have a good relationship with food, if you don't have a good relationship with alcohol, you can't give that to your children. When we talk about uh, overindulging in something or uh, stopping, very often we go back to the old habit and we have this relapse. How can we avoid relapsing? 
because there is an emotional aspect that is connected with the fact that we go back to that old habit. Feels like failing, right? That we didn't really achieve the first time around the success that we hoped for. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said earlier, there, there is that, that point about constantly moving forward, but almost more important is, is the emotional aspect of it. And, and yes, it's, it's about healing and increasing your understanding of the world and increasing your understanding of the way these things work. And uh, actually, I've met, I've met quite a few people who they get to the other side and just like Mark Lewis, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he had a, had a huge drug problem, got to the other side and then went and got a PhD in neurology to try and understand it. And I think, you know, getting into that kind of really trying to understand it and really trying to work out the, the mechanism behind it, that, that can be enormously helpful and that can, and can help you on your own emotional journey. And then, you know, there is just kind of really getting to grips with, with the emotional emotion behind it and, you know, forgiving yourself. There is a, a whole massive, massive subject. For me, I learned self-forgiveness on the M25. And here you touch already <laughs> with an aspect that is crucial for this podcast. Uh, sure. You know, it's about forgiveness as uh, the very first step to, to thrive. So can we talk about that and how much forgiveness really can help in uh, stopping with overindulgence? For sure, for sure. I mean, as I said earlier, my own personal feelings on the subject are you should sort out the physical aspect of it because that will make it sorting out the emotional aspect much, much easier. So I stopped drinking and then as it happened, I got an, a, a new job that involved driving on the M25 an awful lot. And I mean, if you've ever done it, you will know that the standard of driving on the M25 is not that high. And what I found was I spent a lot of time shouting at people. And of course, it started to dawn on me that this was an entirely pointless activity because they couldn't hear me, could they? I was just, I was, who was I shouting at? Really, I was shouting at myself. The only person whose day I was affecting was my own. And I got to the point that I thought, well, this is a bit stupid, isn't it? So I should do something to interrupt that automatic thought process. So, you know, you've got, you've got the anchor, you've got the bad driving, you've got the behavior, you've got the shouting at myself. So I decided to get between those and then instead of, uh, you know, when I saw that bad, bad driving, instead of shouting, I'd say to myself, right, loving kindness for you. And I'd just wish the driver of the other car loving kindness. And I'm not entirely perfect at it, but I am pretty good. I have pretty much trained myself entirely now, whenever I get cut up, to just say loving kindness. And it improved my day massively. But the thing is, it also started off this kind of like thought process about, now, what am I essentially doing? I'm essentially forgiving them. Oh, well, that was kind of easy, wasn't it? And that, that kind of led to me being in a, in a more stable place, in a, in a, in a happy, happier place, in a better place, which allowed me to start to think back about all of the stuff that I'd done in my life that I wasn't necessarily particularly proud of, taking it from the point where I was no longer beating myself up about it, that I could kind of forgive myself but most of all, just let it go, you know, because I've been carrying all of that junk around with me for years and years and years. It was really nice to start to put it down and start to lighten my load. That's absolutely beautiful. And 
If you could advise like daily practices to pick up that can help stopping overindulging, what that would be? Or do you have daily practice yourself? So what I just mentioned about, you know, driving and uh, getting between that anchor and that behavior, um, I, I think that is the most powerful process that, that you can learn, you know, and it, it's, it's pretty simple. The way um, BJ Fogg talked about it was, um, you know, you have that anchor, you have that behavior, and then you celebrate it. Because if you celebrate that new behavior, you know, you make yourself happy, you attach that new behavior to a positive emotion, and, and that wires it into your brain a lot quicker. So that simple kind of thing of just being able to accept that there is this, this particular anchor, and then uh, attach a particular behavior to it and then celebrate it. You can do that. You can do an enormous amount of your life. I mean, that is the basis, in my opinion, of stopping drinking or eating junk food. So you've got the anchor, which says, let's have a drink. You've got the behavior, which used to be drink, but the new behavior is now asking the question, what's that? How's that going to help me? You know, how's that going to get me towards my goals for this year? Um, and then being happy that you remembered to answer that question. If it's nothing more than a smile, that's good. But, you know, if you want to you shake your booty or pump your fist in the air or imagine the entire Royal Albert Hall is clapping and shouting your name, whatever. But, you know, get, get, build that element of celebration into it and that will wire it into your brain stronger. Um, you know, that you can do. You can do anything. There are so many things in my life that I now use that, not just around not shouting at drivers, but... I've changed recently, I've changed my attitude towards money using it. Just uh, every time I make a cup of coffee in the morning, I, you know, sound of the coffee machine, it reminds me that I need to um, go and stand in front of the mirror and say, I deserve the money. Mm. That's a, a fantastic advice. Now, I want to come back before closing with this uh, conversation. I want to come back on you and... Um, know a little bit more what you're doing, what you're planning to do, if there is anything particular in your pipeline that you want to share with us and uh, sort of advertise to our audience, what that would be? Well, at the moment, uh, I am engaged in, in two things. I am currently writing another book because, as I mentioned earlier, I do quite like writing, but that's not coming out until January 2024. So, um, you know, you're going to have to hold your breath quite a long time for that one. Uh, so the other thing I'm doing is, of course, telling as many people as I can about Get Overindulgent. And if your listeners would like to read the first chapter or indeed listen to the first chapter, if they go to getover.co.uk, they can find that first chapter either as a PDF or on audio. Fantastic. And uh, uh, together with that link, we will put all the other links to your social media as well. Now, final question. If there was one take-home message from this conversation that you would love all the listeners to retain, what that would be? I just, I just really want everybody to know that they're enough. You know, that they don't need alcohol. They don't need junk food. They don't need cigarettes, drugs, social media. They don't need any of that stuff. You know, you, you are complete. Uh, you are a wonderful human being. You are enough. You do not need all of this stuff. You are, you are beautiful as you are. And with this beautiful message, I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. 
and that it has provided insights and inspiration on how damaging on one end overindulgence can be, but also that it's in your power to change your life around. And I want to leave you with a quote from uh, Frank Herbert who said, the proximity of desirable things tempts one to overindulgence. On that path lies danger. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation, for being with us, for being such a fun to talk with, and uh, also for the mission, because I think there is uh, really a need for someone that spells out how we can uh, all get uh, a better life without overindulgence. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. Well, we would like to know what you think about this topic, and if you are uh, overindulging on something and struggling to stop, let us know. Are there specific questions, for example, that we didn't address today? Get in touch with us. And also don't forget to check Duncan's website to read his book and to follow him on social media. We will put all the links in the description of today's episode. Hopefully not, but if you think you have been affected by the topic we discussed today, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.